Our scripture lesson today comes from Paul's letter. It's an open uh, letter to uh, maybe as many as 500 churches that he had been a part of or knew of or they knew of him. And so he's writing to them to encourage them in a time of great persecution. Let's share in God's good word together. Watch what God does and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Love like that. Wow, that, that's, a big, that's a big order today, isn't it? To love like God loved us, to be uh, so living in love, so sacrificial in our love that we would give ourselves away in the same way that God gave God's own self away for us. Uh, my name is Mark Foster. I'm a senior founding pastor here, and we are in our fifth week on a series about identity because identity may very well be the most important thing about you. It's who you are, who you are really. And it's very difficult to know who you are unless you know who you belong to, whose you are. And we claim as Christians that you are a child of God, an heir of the kingdom, someone who can participate in the very things of God today, not just after you're dead, but right now, that the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus says, and it's been so since he arrived some 2,000 years ago. As a way to get at this over the last number of weeks, uh, we've taken from Henry Nouwen, who is an incredible theologian. He's now passed. Uh, but he says this about identity. He says there are five, lives in our, five lies in our culture about identity. The first is this, if you'll read it with me. I am what I have. Is that true? No. What you have comes and goes. And so are you a great person if you've got lots of stuff and a bad person if you don't have lots of stuff? The answer is no. I know we live in Edmond, but really the answer is no. No, no, that's not true. Lie number two, say it with me. I am what I do. That's not true either. Now, this is very difficult, very, very difficult, because I see this all the time. When people retire, their lives start to fall apart because they don't know who they are anymore because they thought they were what they did. And now they can't do what they used to do in all sorts of ways. And then, it, then they're really lost. They become broken souls. They just don't have meaning or purpose or anything in their life because that's gone. And they don't know what to do or who they are because they believe lie number two. Number three, say it with me. I am what other people say or think of me. Is that true? Oh, let's hope not. You see this all the time with famous people. Uh, they're on the top of the charts. They're doing great. Uh, they fall out of the charts. They're in rehab. Right? Isn't that true? You see this all the time with people who live on fame, on what people think or say of them. Now, number four. Um, let's read this together. I am nothing more than my worst moment. Now, what I find is that churches are really good about debunking number four, right? Churches all over the world say, now, of course, you've been saved. You're forgiven. You're not like that anymore. You're more than that. We get that. What we don't get is number five. Read that with me. I am nothing less than my best moment. Now, that's harder, isn't it? But you know this is true as well. If you've ever been in a conversation with someone who was a high school athlete and now they're not, and, and almost every time you meet them, they tell you about their game-winning touchdown, you know, their senior year of whatever, and what are you thinking? Like, move on. Like, like you're old, dude. Move it. Right? Like, don't, don't talk to me about what you used to do in high school. And, and so this is, this is also not true, right? Of course we're less than our best moment. We, we all have seasons. We're up and we're down and we're up and we're down. And the reason that we know that we're... Um, not always at our best, 
is the truth of this. That we all make what? Mistakes. Absolutely we do. Isn't that true? We all make mistakes. Every single one of us. And Paul writes that. He says, we all make mistakes. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Nobody gets to boast or brag about that. We all make mistakes. Isn't that true? <laughs> no, really. Isn't that true? <laughs> yes, yes. Read it with me. We all make mistakes. Right? We all make mistakes. And because that's true, forgiveness is the key. Forgiveness is the key. And, and so in every community of faith, in every household, in every relationship you have, you need six words. The first is this. I am sorry. Say those three with me. I am sorry. I know for many of you that's the first time you've ever said it. It's very difficult. I am sorry. But after that, you need three other words, and they are, if you know them, I forgive you. Let's try that. I forgive you. Without those six words, you cannot stay in relationship. I am sorry and I forgive you. Forgiveness is the key. Now, churches will, will teach this as well. But there's something else that we don't want to admit because it's very difficult to internalize. It's very difficult to know what to do with. Um, and it's fairly dangerous if you actually think about it for long. And that is when you forgive someone, it doesn't always change us, does it? And so when you, when you come in contact with a bully, when you come in contact with someone who's being spirited, when you come in contact with someone who doesn't know the Lord, when you come in contact with someone who says they know the Lord, but they have no fruit to show it, this is a dangerous deal. And somebody hits you in the face, and you're like, oh, wow, turn the other cheek, I forgive you. And you're like, I forgive you, go on. And, and then they hit you again right in the face. What should you do next? Run. Really, I mean, get away from them. They're a dangerous person. There needs to be a boundary. You're not safe to be with. And that's why at, at times when people aren't safe in community, you, you put them in jail because they need to be in jail for the safety of the rest of the community. This is good and right and proper. There's nothing wrong with that. And we don't have our Christianity get in the way of that. Now, there's also injustice around there. There's a whole sermon series about that. But, but what I'm saying is we need clear boundaries around forgiveness and what forgiveness is and is not. It's supposed to change us, isn't it, when you forgive people? And, and Peter had an understanding of this, and he was really troubled with this, and he, he comes to Jesus about this, because I think one of the other disciples was on his last nerve. It was probably his little brother, Andrew. And so he comes to Jesus, and he says, hey, Jesus, if another member of the church sins against me, you know, probably one of the inner 12, Philip, Bartholomew, one of them, how often should I forgive? And as I think of it, you know, Peter's got a number in his mind, and somebody's on the one next to that number, right? He's ready to, to get them. And, and Jesus says, well, Hold on a minute. Talk to me. And, and Peter says, as many as seven times, which he thinks he's being you know, really magnanimous at this point. Ooh, seven times. And Jesus says to him, no, not seven. I tell you 77 times. Other translations or other places in the Bible, it's going to read 70 times seven. And of course, for me as a, as a junior high kid, um, I thought that meant 490 and my sister was on 489. Right? I'm like, I'm, I'm ready, Jesus. And we all get to that point with people, don't we? Like, we just need to know. Like, when can we suck it to them? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't understand this at all. So he tells them a story. Jesus looks at him and he tells a story. Jesus says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began the reckoning, one owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that's a number bigger than most of us can get our minds around. A talent is worth at least, my footnote says, 15 years wages. Think about what you make times 15 years, times 10,000. That's a big number. And as he could not pay it, of course he couldn't, his Lord, the boss, orders him to be sold. But not just him, his wife or wives, his children, all his possessions, and payment to be made. 
Everything he loved, everything he cared about was about to be over, all of it. Not just to him, but to all the people he loved, his children, and everything he owned. So, of course, the slave falls on his knees before the Lord and he says, read it with me, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Right? He, he's desperate because his world as he knows it is about to be over. And, Jesus tells us in the story, out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and did what? Say with me, forgave him. He forgave him the debt. But that same slave, now, in my mind, because this is the highest guy and the next highest guy, this is like the CFO, right? This is a guy who's got access to lots of things. The amount that he owes is a big number. There's no way he can do it. Yet, somehow, the top guy forgave him. Now, he's leaving the office suite, and that same slave, as he comes out, came to one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. Say 100 denarii with me. 100 denarii. That's not much money, friends. That's one day's wage times 100 in that day. And he seizes him by the throat, and he says, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him. Now, notice the word. Same with me again. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Almost word for word what he had just said to his boss. What happens next? Jesus says, this guy refused. Then he went away and he threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. And when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Office politics. Right? Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave. Say it with me. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? I had mercy on you. And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. At this point, we should be getting really nervous. And Jesus stops the story. And he turns and he looks at his audience. And then he says this, in case you missed it. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart it's a good time for a potty break oh i mean this is a rough teaching because it's about forgiveness and if the lord your god has forgiven you he's chosen to come from heaven to earth go to the cross for you that's supposed to change our response to others and this is what Jesus says happens if we don't. No kidding. Now, to put that in today's dollars, I asked Jeff for some help here. 2018, let's say the guy makes $15 an hour. Worker number one is forgiven. Anybody know how much? $4.5 billion. Billion dollars. I'm told that a billion is a thousand million. Is that right? That's a big number. Clearly, he could not pay $4.5 billion. Anybody in here could pay $4.5 billion? I really want to know you. Right? No, no, we can't do that. They, he couldn't do it. We can't do it. Yet I wonder if somebody owes you something. Because the second guy owed this guy 126 bucks. And he would not let him off the hook. You see, God looks at the heart. We know this all the way back to David when Samuel's choosing the king. God's not looking at all this other stuff. He's looking at your heart. And he'd been forgiven much. So at this point, you're like, wow, I, I have no idea how to do this because I've got some people I really need to forgive. And this, I'm really in conflict here. I'm, like, I'm really struggling. I mean, it, it's a real deal. 
Mother Teresa will help us out. As a place to start, she says this. Smile five times a day at someone you don't really want to smile at. Do it for peace. Do it for peace. Now, at this point, I'm really nervous because I wonder how many people are going to start smiling at me. But, but anyway, that's how she says to start. Like, we, we may not forgive perfectly. That's okay. But we have to start somewhere. If we really begin to incorporate God's salvation into our life, that we really believe that we have truly been forgiven, then that's supposed to change us. It has to change us. Or we have to wonder if it's even real. And so the context of this teaching, as we look at who we really are about this identity, is that Paul is in jail in Rome. And the whole reason he's in jail is because he had the audacity to say that God loved everyone equally, Jews and non-Jews alike, which was a brand new concept for them. And so he's in jail, awaiting trial from Nero, and they're going to take his head off. He's going to die for this. This is the year 64. It's about 30 years after Christ has died and been resurrected. Nero has set uh, a whole section of poor Rome, the poor sections of Rome on fire, and then blamed the Christians for it. Uh, It's an old political trick. Uh, thousands of years old, um, you do something terrible, and then you blame a small minority for it. And then everybody gets on board, and as you hate that one minority group, then everybody's united. It's as old as dirt. It still happens today. Now, the map says this. So Paul's over here. He's riding back to Ephesus, and Paul has started churches from Jerusalem all the way around here. Ephesus, Colossae, um, Corinth is right there, Galatia. Thessalonica, all through here, he started these churches. And he's writing back to them to say, hold on. Hold on. You're going to make it because of Christ. What Christ has done for you, you have power that's beyond your imagination. That's back in chapter 3. He says, you can do this. God is for you. Christ lives in you. He is raised. Wake up, O sleeper. That's what he says in this chapter. So Ephesians is this open letter. Not just to one particular people, but to all these churches, these persecuted churches that Paul has started or has some kind of relationship with. And Paul's aim for these churches in this very difficult time is both the unity of all of the churches and it's, say it with me, maturity. Now at this point, there's something that I know that many of you know as well, it's sort of hard to deal with, and that is, I'm 50 years old, and the question for me is, have I matured 50 years in Christ or have I matured five years in Christ ten times? Am I a five-year-old up here talking to you or am I a 50-year-old up here talking to you in terms of my formation, in terms of my spiritual depth? Do I know things of Christ that an adult mature believer should know or do I still have my Sunday school faith trying to prop me up, which it doesn't work, right? Your Sunday school faith at 50 doesn't work for you, right? What you learn about Noah's Ark as a five-year-old won't hold you as a 50-year-old. You got to grow in that. It's true, but there are different layers to truth, isn't that right? You think you know what marriage is like when you're five and you're in, the, you know, in your front yard and you do the little wedding ceremony with dandelions. Is that what, the way you all experience marriage today? Oh my gosh, I really hope not. Right? It's a different thing. So, and, and as we come into this chapter, uh, Paul writes this. He says, now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as you used to, as Gentiles, as non-Jews. You have to grow up, he says. He says, God backs me up on this, that there's no going along with the crowd Say it with me. No going along with the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. They've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch not only with God, but with reality itself. They can't think straight anymore. Have you ever been a part of something where you just go along with the crowd? You're just on autopilot. You know, like when you leave your home and you wonder, is my garage door up or down? Right? You're just going through the motions. Now, some of you, like me, you just, you go along, and, and I, don't mean, I don't mean that the crowds necessarily mean spirit or even bad. You're just going along mindlessly, right? 
So on Thursday, this will be happening. I'll be there. Uh, my wife and I, uh, Chantel, we have a good friend taking us to the game for our anniversary. We'll be married 27 years. And so that's where you applaud. But 27 years, we made it, right? Don't judge me that I'm taking my wife to a football game on my anniversary. But, but we're going. And if I'm not careful, when the band starts playing, I'm going to start doing this. Or I'm going to be doing this. Or I'm going to be clapping. I'm just mindlessly going on because I've been doing it since I was 18. Right? I'm, just, I'm not thinking about it. I'm just doing it. Again, nothing wrong with it. It's just that maybe, you know, what, what happens? That might be me. Right? Maybe not be me. Right? Um, and let's, let's just say, for example, that we're, we're playing an inferior team, perhaps. Um, and one of our guys, a superstar, runs down at the kickoff and he lays out a guy. Um, and when he hits him with all of his force, right, on the football field, we all go what? Yeah, ooh, awesome. In real life, we call that assault and you go to jail. Seriously, think about it. And I want you to think about what happens in your own soul, in your own heart, when, when an 18-year-old kid goes down because somebody that you identify laid him out. Now, what, what, what's going on within you? Which identity rules? Right? Does this make sense? I mean, are you praying for the kid that's on the ground that might die or have uh, life-altering injuries? I mean, this, I love football, but you got, you got to understand which identities are in you. What goes on within you as this stuff happens? Have you just mindlessly gone on with the crowd, or are you actually engaged as a light in the world? Now, I'm told there's another game on Saturday, right? <laughs> that, that some of you all have, you know, some of you go to those things, right? You, you look like this. I know you do, Right? Uh, some of you even wear your colors to church. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, John, for being examples. I appreciate it. You know, and, uh, and I, this is terrible for me. I happen to love some OU people now that I know you, and uh, it's great. Now, before you think I'm being too mean, because I, th- I think game day is great, but you have to ask yourself, are, what's your witness? What's your life? What's your identity as you go, as you do, right? Now, some of you, I know what you're saying. You're like, I don't even live in Oklahoma. This is stupid. Like, just move on. You know, I... My family and I, we, we're professional sports people. Like, we, we're not lowbrow. We're highbrow people. I'm like, really? Like, that's it, right? <laughs> right? That's your highbrowness there, right? Now, again, nothing wrong with the thunder. Thunder's awesome. But, you know, don't mindlessly go with the crowd, whatever crowd that is. We are to be different in the world, right? So, you won't, you'll never get that one out of your head. So... <laughs> So read it with me. There is no going along with the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. That's not who we are. We are one body, friends. That's what Melissa told us last week, connected and influencing one another. We really are. And, and this, is, this is so hard um, to, to incorporate and to know and to... I mean, it'll shake you to your core if you think about this. What you do on Wednesday afternoon affects me and everybody else in here. What you do on Saturdays affects Sundays. What you do on Fridays affects the community, affects everybody that you know. That's what Paul's teaching. Every single church affects every other church because we're one body. And so what you do, your holiness matters, your power matters, your choices matter, and it affects all of us. There's no such thing as, as being off page in a vacuum. Everything that we all do, what I do, how I live, affects you. The smaller the community, the easier it is to see. The larger the community, the more difficult it is to see. But you've heard of the butterfly effect. Every person in the room is super important. And everything that you do, 
all week long. All 168 hours is super important. Here's the truth of it that's tough. The challenge is this, that our behavior affects the holiness of the community. It affects our spiritual power, our ability to heal and to help and to give and to care all the time, all the time. And maybe you don't go to, to big events like college football or, or Thunder Games, but maybe you go to the soccer team. Maybe you're there on, on Saturday. And, and I, I do want you to know that I've had people tell me um, that they were thinking about joining our church, uh, and then they played against um, some other parents in our church, and they decided they could no longer come to church here because of the actions of the parents on the other team. They just didn't want to be a part of it. They didn't want to be associated with people that acted like that on a soccer field in front of their kids. Just didn't. And the pain that that causes us, the lesser that we are because we simply lost our identity. We thought our identity as this sort of a person was more important than our identity as that kind of a person. Does this make sense? And, and we would say, well, this never happens, but does. Happens every week all over the country, even ladies. Well, you don't get to call them ladies, but you know what I'm saying? And, and adults on children. We just lost our minds about identity. And people are all about club sports or kids sports because it teaches us identity and power. Identity, who are you? And power, what can you do? And when we start to get those confused, the world goes haywire because our identity is in Christ. Our identity is the child of God. Our identity is one who's forgiven. And that changes the way we live. The way we live. Now, you, you may say, okay, now you're just being silly. That's not me. We're not going to do that. But I bet some of you are going to go lunch after this, aren't you? How do you treat her? What does that look like? In, in the early 90s, I was appalled to find out that when they polled waiters and waitresses, the people that they absolutely did not want to serve, they did not want the Sunday afternoon shift because they said Christians were mean, difficult, and lousy tippers. That's what they said about us. That should not be the case. Friends, if you're not going to tip, don't tell them you're a Christian. Hide your cross. <laughs> right? We're to be people of blessing. People of grace, people of extravagant love, right? No, seriously, you know this stuff, right? But that lives out out there, out there. And you realize that most people don't think of, oh, I'm going to be a waitress when I grow up, right? Normally, these are jobs that people are working two and three jobs at a time so that they can go on and get a degree or do this or do something else. This isn't her life's goal normally. It's certainly not his. When you see people who, who come at a later stage in life and they're still serving you, they've more than likely he's got wife and kids at home and he's busting it trying to make a living. We need to bless these people. Bless that hard work. Bless that ethic of showing up and doing your thing. Taking care of your family. It's important. It's really important because God looks at our heart and what we do. Right? So a couple of years ago, Something happened to me at Walmart that I, I hope I never forget. And uh, Chantel and I were checking out. I think it was Bible school week, actually, numbers of years ago. And uh, the, the checker at Walmart said, hey. She noticed we had our Bible school shirts on. She goes, do you go to that church? And I'm like, oh, no. Like, like what is this? So I did not tell her I was a pastor. And uh, I was like, uh-huh. Why? <laughs> you know, I'm kind of nervous at this point. And she says, no kidding. The peop every person I've ever met wearing one of those Acts 2 shirts are the nicest people I've ever met. They bless me. They're pleasant. They're kind. They wait for others. They let other people go in front of them. They're the best people I've ever met. And I'm going, oh, I'm the pastor of that church. <laughs> That's my church. You know, now, I mean, now you say it that way. Oh, yeah. See, what we do everywhere matters. It's a witness. It's a blessing. It's encouragement. 
Imagine that not just here, but at all, every place that you go, that truth replaces lying. Really. The truth. That people know that when they engage with you, they're going to get the truth. That when they talk to you, you're going to listen. But what would it be if we were a church that just decided together we're never going to interrupt anyone again? We're just not going to. Yeah, maybe we're going to be a little late here or there, but we're, just, we're going to allow people to speak to us and honor them and bless them and hear them, really hear them. Imagine how that might change us as a community if we never interrupted anyone ever again. Where giving replaces greed and forgiveness replaces anger and work, hard work, really strong work replaces theft. And that's important, friends. You may not think how you work at your work matters. It matters. I've had people come to me and say, I, I can't go to your church. And I said, why? They said, because I used to work for this person who goes to your church. And they don't, they don't work. They put it on all the rest of us. They're, they're not a person of honor. They don't work hard. They, they're really stealing from the company. And I can't be associated with folks like that. I just can't. I don't, I don't want to go to your church because I know they're there. This, this is real stuff, friends. There's nothing I have any control over other than to let you know it matters. It really matters. And, you know, church has been arguing now for lots and lots of years around sexuality. Friends, let, let's just say this, that sex is meant to be a blessing as well, and it's within a covenantal relationship where people bless each other and are closer, and, and wonderful things happen out of that relationship instead of using others. That's what Paul's talking about. There's this whole rant that he gives about pagan practices that are normative in that culture. He says, don't do any of that. It's hurtful. Don't do that. Don't do that. And, and people around here now, 2,000 years later, want to pick this or pick that. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, look, all of this is hurtful, and you can live better in all these categories. So he says this. This is actually possible. Be angry. Yes, we're all going to get angry, but you don't have to sin. You don't have to. You don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't make room for the devil. Don't be a powder. Thieves must give up stealing. Really, don't steal. Work hard. Let you labor and work honestly with their own hands. Why? So you have something to share with the needy. Read that with me. Share with the needy. Did you know that your work's not actually about you? It's partly you, but it's not just for you and your family. It's actually to share with the needy. Church has always known this. We work so that we can share. And then Paul says this, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for, say it with me, building up. Building up, really, encouragement. As there's, as there's need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Grace, love, forgiveness. You see, our speech is to be two things. Same with me, encouraging or thankful. That's it. If it's not encouraging, if it's not full of gratitude, don't say it. That's it. That's supposed to be the book on us. We're not to be super critical people. We're to be encouraging people. We're not to be, oh, my day was so hard. We're supposed to be thankful people. That's who we're called to be. Now, you might wonder, how is this vision possible? Like, this seems really pie in the sky. Like, I've never even seen this. I don't know what this looks like. And Paul says this. It's not really that complex. It's difficult, but it's not complex. You simply imitate God. That's what you do. You imitate God as beloved children. Live in love. Say that with me. Live in love. And then he says the gospel. Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, an offering, a sacrifice to God. That's how you do it. So we live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, I stole this next image and metaphor from John Vick, who preached Friday. Uh, John's our uh, uh, assistant at one church on our Friday night, and he's going to move on to another church here in a couple of weeks, and we love him and, uh, and bless him. He's a, a, a religion student at OCU. But on Friday night, he said this, we are to live in Christ in the same way a fish lives in water, right? We live in it, we breathe in it, we swim in it. This is how we live in love. This is how we live in love, live in light, just like a fish in a fishbowl and fish in water. This is how we are. Everything we do, motivated by, empowered by, breathed in by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And then he said this, imitating God isn't just about looking more like God, it's also about looking less like the world, for real. Because if we look exactly like the world, how's anybody going to know the difference? Now, that's not saying the world is bad. I didn't go there. I didn't say that. But I did say there's supposed to be something unique about us where we live in love and light in the way that the world does not and cannot know without the Spirit of Christ living in them. It's something that we do. We live out. So Paul goes on to say, this is what I mean by that. Don't allow love to turn into lust, setting off a downhill slide into sexual promiscuity, filthy practices, or bullying greed. Don't do that. He says, though, some tongues just love the taste of gossip. Isn't that true? Sure, we know those folks. Those who follow Jesus have, say it with me, better uses for language than that. We just do. Don't talk dirty or silly. That kind of talk doesn't fit our style. Read this with me. Thanksgiving is our dialect. That's who we are, people who are thankful. Now, don't you love a thankful person? You ever done something nice for somebody, you didn't even think about it, and you get a thank you note like three days later, like a handwritten note? How do you feel about that? You're like, curses, they're such a suck up. No, you love it, don't you? I mean, I do. I'm like, oh, that's that's so nice. They actually noticed. That's great. I mean, we want to be people of thanksgiving. And then John Maxwell says it like this. We are to love people and use things. Will you say that with me? We are to love people and use things. Never the other way around. Not even once. We're to love people and use things to bless them. And if you want to know why, he says this. Because you were darkness, sure, that's true. But now in the Lord you're light. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So we are to live as children of love and of light. That's who we are. And then we're to look for what is, say them with me, good and right and true. That's what we do. And then he says this, which we started the service with. Sleep or awake. Wake up, people. Let's do this together. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You don't do this in your own power. It's Christ living in us. Now, I need to close with this because um, when Chantel and I were first married, um, she put a scripture in my ring. And I'll talk more about that in just a second. And, And in that ring, this is part of the verse. Read it with me. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are to be subject to one another, to submit to one another. Um, A different translation puts it like this. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Now think about your own life. Are you courteously reverent to the people that you love around you? Do you lift them up? Are you courteous to them? Are you reverent to them? That's what we do. Not because they deserve it, but because of what we've received in Christ. And so at our wedding... Chantel um, engraved in my ring Ephesians 5, 21 to 31, which is beautiful to me. It talks about the way we're to love one another. Now, when I got to seminary, my more liberal friends thought it was anathema. They're like, oh, what are you doing? How in the world do you have a ring that says wives, you know, submit to your husbands? Forgetting that the, you know, the verse before says submit to one another. Nobody had a problem with that a second later, you know, or that I would have to give my life for her. So here's the thing. Notice that it doesn't say compromise. That's where we get this wrong. This isn't about compromise. This is about submitting to one another. You wonder what that looks like. It looks like this. Chantel, in this section of our life, whatever you want to do, I'll do. Whatever it is, I'm in. I love you. I trust you. We'll do it. That's it. That's what submission looks like. She says back to me, okay, in this area of our life over here, Mark, I'll do whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do, I'll do it. I love you. I trust you. I'm in. You get this? Friends, seriously, if you are not married today, do not get married. Don't even have a roommate if you won't submit to others. 
It's dangerous. You think about your own life. You get to that place with your spouse or child where they're going to submit to you. No, you're going to submit to me on the same issue. It's on, isn't it? It's terrible. And left unchecked, you call the cops and they come and break it up. It's not unusual. It's dangerous. If you can't submit, don't be in relationship with anybody. Because it'll just tear you up. It'll blow you up. That's the truth of it. We see it all the time. We're not talking compromise. We're talking about actually saying, I love you, I trust you, I'll do what you want to do here. Now, you can't do that in all areas because not everybody's on page in all areas. We get that. But it's really important we understand this. Fame Perkins, a professor of theology at Boston College, uh, she says this, when we look at this writing from Paul 2,000 years later, we have to understand that if you were a woman or a child or a slave, if, if the head of the household didn't like what you were doing that day, they'd just have you killed. That's it. That's the culture this is written in. And we have to understand that. That and that they really believe Jesus was coming back on Thursday. So wherever you find yourself, just hang in, because on Thursday, Jesus is coming back, it's going to be fine. So these are two major differences culturally from then to today. And so the attention paid to women and slaves suggests this sort of exemplary behavior because it kept them alive. Does this make sense? In that culture at that time, they're like, look, do what you need to do because it's going to keep you alive. Now, let me be really clear about this. This does not require wives to accept degrading or unworthy, unchristlike forms of subjection today. It does not. If that's you, call 911, see Brandon, see Andy, see me. Uh, we'll get you help. We'll get you to a shelter, get you safe. This, you cannot use scripture to abuse people, ever. God hates that. We're really clear about that. And to be fair, the only time I've people had kind of bow up with me around these scriptures, it's men who are off page. That's the truth of it. That's just, that's just the truth of it. Now, conservatives will often say, you know, if men were really the head of the household, as, the, as it says there, then wouldn't things be better? Well, if they were perfect, yeah. I mean, if they were perfect, sure. But the reality is, we all make what? Mistakes. I mean, that's clear. Now, the liberals are going to respond that this text in Ephesians 5 has been used to exonerate abuse against women and children. Is that true? Yes, of course it's true. That has happened. But you don't get to throw away the text. It's still God's word for us. We've got to wrestle with it. We've got to figure it out. And so the moderates try to thread the needle, uh, which is kind of where I place myself, and, and agree that people in the family need respect. Men, women, children, helpers, all of it. We all need respect. And no one is to suffer violence, ever. That's not what we're about. So a modern-day approach would be this. If your wife has expertise in an area, let her run with it. If your husband has expertise in another area, let him run with it. And if you need to reset your VCR, do something on Facebook or watch Netflix, ask your kids. Because they know. Right? I mean, do what makes sense in the modern context. Right? And if you don't know the password to keep everybody off the naughty channels, ask your youngest kid. They know it. And that, they've already figured it out. Right? So even children have a role in this. We are to be subject to one another. We are to be, say it with me, subject to one another. Really. Uh, but let me be clear. Replacing maleness or femaleness uh, as the head of household with some sort of economic thing of who's got the bigger paycheck, that doesn't work any better. It's still power and control. So, here's the thing. What Jesus has done for us on the cross is to so change us, to so change our behavior and our orientation towards serving and loving others that subjecting ourselves to love others is our way of life. That's to be our way of life with everyone. And here's, here's the thing we don't want to admit. If we struggle, if you and I struggle with the metaphor of this text about marriage relationships, what they call household codes, 
it might really be more about our lack of embracing the reality of what's been done for us at the cross than it is about our marriage. Because if we don't submit to him, we don't have the power to submit to anybody else. And if you really find yourself upset that other people won't do get in line with your vision, maybe it's because you haven't ever gotten in line with his vision for you of love, of grace. Because if you really think about what you, we've been forgiven, how he's lifted us up, saved us from things we couldn't save ourselves from, think about how that ought to change the way we act with others, the way we forgive them, the way we bless them, the way we serve them. So, for us to mature in Christ, let's answer this question. How have I grown in my spiritual formation this year? How have you grown in Christ? Are you, right, a 50-year-old Christian? Or are you a five-year-old Christian just doing the same thing over and over? So, as you answer that question, answer this question. What is my plan? You have to have a plan for these things. Nobody falls into faithfulness accidentally. Right? Isn't that true? You're like, oh, oops, I just happen to be a better Christ follower today. I never knew it. Right? It actually takes a plan. And so, we're here to help you. I really encourage you to sign up today to mature in your faith, to grow in love with God and others. Now, that might be here. We've got, you know, 20-plus different things that you could grow into in service and in learning, or it might be outside of this church. All that's okay with me, but what's your plan to really grow in Christ-likeness so that when you get to 2019, you'll actually have grown from 2018? Make sense? We encourage you to do it, to really take action today and to make a plan to grow in faith and mature in Christ for the very transformation of the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are with us, that you give us every power, every forgiveness, every grace that we need to live fully into you, to have the wisdom and the discernment to submit where we need to submit, uh, and to run when we need to run, and to grow where we need to grow. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us and use us and grace us, and that we would respond with all that we are to bless others because you blessed us first. We thank you that you even taught us how to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.